The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And for those of you in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids' zone side. And if it's your child's first time in children's church, go with them so we can check, in them, check them in properly. Thank you. Good morning. This is your first time here. My name is Jared. I'm also on staff here at Restoration Southside, and I'm so happy that you're here. It's a wonderful morning. It's a powerful text that we get to explore together. One of the uh, not fun parts about being a pastor is that whatever it is that you're preaching on each week, Uh, The Holy Spirit likes to jump up and down on your heart about that particular sin so that by the time you're there on Sunday, you're totally hands open preaching from weakness, not preaching from a place of superiority, meaning you'll believe what I say to the degree that I believe it. And so, ironically, this passage being on love, I've had it already this morning to apologize to both my wife and to my son on separate offenses 
for demonstrating a lack of love. So I hope you'll be convicted and encouraged as well this morning. When John wrote his gospel, that's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote his gospel, the story of Jesus' life and death. He says at the end of that gospel, he writes these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, essentially. So the gospel that John wrote was so that you would believe. This, in 1 John, he wants to write to Christ's people to assure them that they are Christ's. So it's this natural progression of come to faith in Christ, go through struggles and difficulties, doubt whether you are one of God's own and need assurance of faith. And so he writes this letter, 1 John, not so necessarily you would believe, but to believers so that they would be assured of their own faith. So in other words, this The way that John wants us to feel assured of our own faith, the main way is our love for each other. The main way that John wants us to be assured of our faith, at least the main way that we're going to explore this morning, is our love for each other. So this is primarily a text for believers, but it's going to have implications for unbelievers in just a few moments. One of the things that we see in John and in the words of Jesus over and over again, if you want to know for sure that you're a Christian, you look into your life and look for what? Love. We started this new sermon series for the summer, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Love is where the fruit of the Spirit starts. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Would you pray with me and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning? Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pour out your Holy Spirit on me, through me. If there's anything Christians should get right, it's love. And yet, it's something we see as a glaring weakness and failure in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our extended families, the people at work. God, we struggle to love well. And I pray, God, that you would break through that this morning, that you would cause us both to experience and see your love, and that you would motivate us to love one another. We need your help. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's a senior pastor in St. Louis who wanted to get to know the people of his church, and so he went around and throughout the course of several months attended each one of the small groups of the church. Wanted to get to know them, get to know their names, let them get to know him a little bit. He would take questions, and he also just kind of wanted to know the personality of the different small groups in his church. One that he went to was sort of the young, angry Christians. The Christians who are like the ones who are always right and always want to one-up each other on what they know or what they've read. The ones who want to focus on big and meaty topics. They want to have deep small group, not just friendly small group, deep small group. And inevitably, they always end up debating in their small group about the Bible and about the sermon, debating. 
Well, the debate that they were having when the pastor came is whether it was more important to speak the truth in love, whether truth or whether love was more important. Meaning they know we're supposed to do both. Of course, when you're trying to speak the truth, you're going to love people. Or maybe when you're going to try to love people, you're going to sort of speak the truth. Which one really matters? If it all comes down, which one really matters? So the young and angriest of the group <laughs> leaders asked the pastor, he's like, look, we all know this. We know that we're supposed to try and love and try and speak the truth. But pastor, when it really comes down to it, when we're in that main conversation with that person who disagrees with it, when it really comes down to it, pastor, which one? Do I speak the truth or do I love the person? Which one should I do? And the pastor smiled. And he said, young man, what you don't understand, what you have failed to see, is the second that you have stopped loving that person, you are no longer speaking the truth. The second that you have stopped loving that person, you are no longer speaking the truth. To this brash young man who wants to debate about the importance of theology thought at the end of the day what I really have to do is speak the truth and this kind and wise pastor said at the end of the day the moment you stop loving you can't even tell the truth anymore those things are so tied together profoundly in our hearts and the reason for that that they are tied so profoundly together in our hearts they are tied so profoundly together in our God and they're both there all the time without stop he loves us and he tells us the truth he loves us and he tells us the truth he doesn't have one without the other it's a good word for this place, for our church. The word love is going to be used 27 times in this passage, in this text, in this book. We want to see how this verse plays out. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So let's look at this together. I want you to see four things in this text. Let's look at this together. We see the source of love, the model and motivation for love, and we'll see the mission of love, and we'll see the means by which we learn to love. The source, the motivation and model, the mission of love, and the means of love. Well, let's first look at the source of love together. This is from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We said this passage is, is bold. It's striking. It doesn't say God is like love. Or we watch the Trinity and we say, oh, we know an adjective that that kind of describes. It's like this. What he's saying is that God is himself love. We get the idea from who he is, not just something that he does. He is the source of love. 
Now, Erin and I were talking about it this week as she was writing Children's Church and I was writing the sermon. It sounds almost as if, let us love from one another, for love is from God and whoever has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. She's saying, you know, one of the applications people could take from that is that you can't actually have real love if you don't know God. You can't actually have real love if you don't know God. And that's not to be pushed here from this text. Love in human relationships has this supernatural defined by love side and it also has this common grace side, meaning God gives love to believers and unbelievers. God gives rain to believers and unbelievers. He gives good things to people because he loves them. So it's not as if an unbeliever can't experience love, but what he's saying here in this passage is that the whole point of the church is for them to learn to love one another. It's to love one another as they experience the love they have received in Christ. He's saying God is the source of love. In other words, his point is this, this church that needs to know that they're Christians, needs to have assurance of faith. And he's saying, if you want to know that you have assurance of faith, you can't have this gospel of God who loves you and has gave himself for you and has sustained you and and provided for you and then not love one another. He said it's a non sequitur. You can't be a child of God who is love and not live a life of love. He's saying those things don't Go together. I want you to hear this. Part of what we're supposed to understand with God being the source of love is that he loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. He loves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. What it means is is that his love for us says more about him than it does about us. His love for us says more about him than it does about us. He's the source of love. And the reason I really want you to to get that into your bones, get that into your DNA, is because if you think his love for us, his love for us is dependent upon our love for him, we will always be in this place where we are sensing that we have run out of his love for us. He loves us, but only if we're loving him back. But then we walk around with our heads ashamed looking at our shoes because we're not doing a very good job. And we're basing what he thinks about us based upon our behavior. And what I'm freeing you from is what he thinks about you is based on his behavior. It's based on his character. So when you're struggling in your marriage, when you're struggling with addictions, when you're limping around, continuing to give yourself to the same sin over and over again, you're going to question, does he love me because of your behavior? But you need to remember that he loves you because he has chosen to love you. His love is based on him. His love is not based on you. In other words, the Trinity from eternity past has been in this relationship together, Father, Son, and Spirit, in which there is this mutual love and delight in relationships, and that is spilling over onto us in Christ, that He is the source of our own love. He is the source of our own love. And He's saying, how can 
you connect yourself to a God as his child and then not have love in your life to give to others. And I want to be really practical because it's one of these sermons that love is so big, it's almost vague. You could walk out of here and think we're supposed to love, we don't do a great job of loving, and yeah, now we're going to go try and love some more. That's not what I want. It's so big it can be vague. I want you to think of individuals in your life who need your love, who need your love. It's not this topic in general of, oh, we as Christians need to go and think about loving this group of people. Who in your life do you need to love? You're at work 40 or 50 hours a week, and then at about 6 o'clock you go spend time with other people, 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock. You don't have boundless amounts of time to love. Who in your life now do you need to love? I'm going to give you three, three profiles, and I want you to think of a person for each of these profiles because I want you to have this sermon to take home with you. I want you to go fill out this sermon in your life. I want you to, first of all, love someone who needs encouraged. Don't you have someone in your life who, as far as loving Jesus and loving others and, and doing what is good for the kingdom, they just need a pat on the back? Sometimes these people are forgotten because they're doing hard work. They're doing things well. They're not a squeaky, squeaky wheel. And they're doing so well, in fact, that people don't even look at them or appreciate them anymore. Is there someone in your life who just needs a pat on the back to say, hey, you're doing great. Keep going. Keep going. Someone in your life who needs encouraged. Here's another profile. How about someone in your life who needs help? Someone in your life who needs help. Maybe it's some person, man or woman, some marriage, some person you know from church, some person you know from work, and you know that they're struggling with an addiction. They're struggling in their relationships. They're struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling with health. They're struggling with mental illness. They're overwhelmed, and they need someone to help them. You have to pour yourself out so that they can be filled up, as Tim Keller says. Who is going to help them? Don't think about love in this abstract, arbitrary terms. Think about the people in your life who need you to go stand next to them and say, you're not alone. I'm not going anywhere. And yeah, it's dark right now, but I'm not going anywhere. You're not alone. Who in your life needs that? Someone who's strong and needs encouraged. Someone who is needy and needs help. And then lastly, how about someone who doesn't believe? Someone who doesn't believe. Who doesn't think the way that you think about Jesus. Who doesn't think the way that you think about Jesus. How can you, who's that profile of the person in your head, how can you go love that person? How can you go be different to them than any other religious or spiritual person than they've met? How can you stand with them and walk with them and delight in them? How can you know them like no one else knows them? Who is an unbeliever in your life that you can love? You can love them because God himself is love and you're one of his kids. So naturally you're going to take on the resemblance of a loving life because that's who God is. He's the source. Not only is he the source, he's the model and motivation for love. Not only is he the source, he's the model and motivation for love. Please listen to this in verse 9.
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He saw we were in need and he sends the best as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says, you need help and I'm sending you the best. My son, my only son whom I love as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And yet we always walk around with our heads aimed at our shoes. Thinking our problem is that we sin too much. That we haven't gotten better enough. That's not your problem. That you sin too much. Or that you make too many mistakes. That's not your problem. Russell Courtney used this quote at our men's break. It's from a sermon that was preached in Colorado. My friend Drake shared it with me this week. He said this, So I'm convinced your deepest problem is not the cigarettes you smoke or the alcohol you drink in secret. It's not the slander you speak and the gossip you cherish. It's not the pornography you pleasure yourself with when no one's looking. It's not the baby you aborted. It's not that you betrayed your brother and cheated on your bride, lied about the whole thing and retaliated with murder. It's not even that you slaughtered the lamb and killed the Messiah. Your deepest problem is that somewhere deep down inside, you believe Jesus the Messiah rose from the dead just to kick your tail. When in fact he rose from the dead so you would believe all is forgiven, it is finished, justice is accomplished, and the Father is pleading, come home, come home, come home. Do you see? Our lack of love for others is because we don't dare believe that we're actually as loved as we are. We don't dare believe that we're actually as loved as we are. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His atoning sacrifice, that word means propitiation. It's a big theological word, but what propitiation means is that Jesus bore the wrath of God down to the bottom, bore the wrath of God so that there wouldn't be any wrath left over for you when he turned his face to you. The father turns his wrath on his son. He says, I love them and we're going to go get them. And so you're going to go and live a perfect life so that you can credit that perfect life to your children. And then you are going to die a gruesome death. You're going to die a gruesome death so that you will be paying paying for the sins. You'll be taking my just wrath against sin out on you and it's going to be dark and it's going to be painful and you're going to pay for that so that once I've drained the wrath out of God, that when I turn to the people, there won't be any anger left. There won't be any wrath left. He says, yes, basic 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. No more wrath. No more wrath. But friends, if you're like me, you walk around in life as if he went 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2. 
Okay, two, we're going to leave two bits of wrath. And so now, instead of walking around confident and hopeful and loving others, you're going to walk around afraid and anxious because you know that there's still two bits of left of wrath. And you know that if you don't walk straight and love well and obey and pray and give and serve, if you don't do those things well, there is two bits left for you. And so instead of living a life of joy and meaning, you live in terror, you live in shame and in guilt, but that's not what happened on the cross. Loved us and gave himself up for us, a propitiation for our sin. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. That's why Jesus said on the cross, do you remember? It is finished. There is nothing left, nothing left, no wrath. That means when you live your life and ongoingly you make mistakes, those mistakes need to be paid for and already have in Christ. You'll never know his grimace. You'll never know wrath because of what Jesus has done. And that will change your life. That will change your life. That, you, people are afraid if you say, no, the, the love is that unconditional. The love is that powerful. What, if you dump all of the discipline on Jesus, the people will do whatever they want. No. When you've been loved like that, all you want to do is love others and love Jesus back. That's why your life is liberated, not reshackled. It's liberated to live a life of love. And I've been profoundly convicted about this this week. One of the ways that we need to show love in our marriages and in our families and in our extended families and at work and at yoga and at CrossFit is forgiveness. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says, Jesus did right and you did wrong. But because Jesus did so right, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive you. And I think one of the things that makes it hard for the unbelieving church to look at our lives and believe the gospel is our total lack of forgiveness. The Holy Spirit ripped my heart apart this week. I have a person and my background from years ago who I nourish resentment and anger towards and not fill my heart with the forgiveness of God found in Christ. And he said, how dare you stand up there and tell those people how to live? When you nourish resentment and withhold for forgiveness in a God who forgives sinners. It's like the unmerciful servant, the king, forgives one debt, a huge debt, a massive debt. And that servant who gets forgiven goes to a smaller servant and doesn't forgive him of so much less. And the king hears about it and he throws the first servant in jail, says, you've been forgiven so much. How dare you not in turn forgive others? Who in your life needs to be forgiven? Not because you want to, not because they deserve it, but because you were forgiven of a higher debt. Who in your life needs that forgiveness? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you've been ruminating and resenting them for so long you can't even see straight anymore. Were you not forgiven once? Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's your extended family. Where do you need to practice the motivating love of Jesus in forgiveness? 
And I want you to see this. What Jesus does here is he loves us in a different way than we're used to. Alistair Begg, he's one of my favorite preachers, he said this, a young man falls in love with a young woman and he loves her because she's lovely. So there is something about her and he loves her because she is lovely. But not so with God. When we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Think about this, friends. If he loved you when you were his enemy, how much more fondness does he feel for you now that you're his child? If he loved you when you were his enemy, how much more fondness does he feel for you now that you're his child? We somehow flip that. We somehow flip that. I don't know how we do it, but when we become a Christian, we're like, I can't believe it. He loves me so much. And become a Christian and then live our lives walking around thinking he's growing less and less fond of us. If he loved you when you were his enemy, how much more tenderness and fondness does he have for you now that you're his child? He loved, so we love. He sacrifices, so we sacrifice. He forgives, so we have to learn to forgive. You see, Jesus, sorry, the Father is the source of love. Jesus is the model and motivation for God's love. Jesus is the model and motivation for God's love. And then we see the mission of love, the purpose of love. Look with me in verse 11, please. Dear friends, since we also ought to love, sorry, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's a crazy thing that happens there, a crazy thing. God wants the outside world to be able to see him when they look at the way that you love one another. God wants the outside world to be able to see him when they look at the way that you love one another. People can see God because of how we treat each other. Now, I know that kind of sounds common, but it's really not a common thought. When we think about God, often many of us think about Jesus, think about walking around the disciples. We could see God. We, we have an image in our head of what it meant to see God. But in the Old Testament, no one could see God. No one would even dare see God. Do you remember the burning bush? That was the invisible God giving Moses something, something to hold on to, something to grasp, to understand that the invisible God actually lives and is real. Or the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke that God leads his people with in the desert. They couldn't see God, but it was an image. It was a, it was a reality. He would let them see some part of his attributes so that they would see what was invisible. John 1.18 says this. Hang in there with me. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one... Sorry, let's start with John 1.18. It says this. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who made him... I said that in the first service too. It's heresy. Let me say it one more time. He can't say just one little word in there. 
No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Okay, hang with me. You want to know what the Father looks like? You can't see him in the Old Testament. You want to know what the Father looks like? You look at Jesus. Now listen to this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. You don't know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. Jesus dies, resurrection, goes back to heaven to stand at the Father's side. You want to know what God is like? Look at the way the church loves each other. That's how significant, how much gravitas, how much weight our testimony is. Do you remember this? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you read your Bibles for 10 minutes in the morning every morning. By this, you will, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you give all your money away to the poor. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you fight your sin really hard and when you fail, you feel really bad about it. No! By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. God is saying outrageously that you want to know what I'm like? Look at Jesus. Now you want to know what I'm like? Look at how the church treats each other. Now, friends, if you go down to the common house or if you go somewhere you can do yoga or working out or you go to one of the restaurants on Main Street and you're pushing your friend who doesn't know Jesus and you're talking to them and you're saying, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? I don't think the answer is going to be is because Christians have loved us too much. They've just loved me too much. They've listened to me too well. They've borne my burdens too much. Is that our testimony? What will they say? We will know they are Christians by their judgmental finger wagging. We will know they are Christians by the silence to speak up about important things. Friends, they will know we are Christians by our love. It's part of what we're trying to do here at Restoration Southside. We are trying to blanket one another so much with kind, sacrificial, forgiving love. So much that when you walk through the doors of this place, we want you to literally feel the atmosphere that I'm safe here. That no one's after me here. That I won't be misused or taken advantage of or overlooked. Wants us to actually feel love. And you know why we want to do that? Because that's what people so desperately need. They're all looking to feel loved and significant, just like you. And Jesus says, Here, church, you want the key to a human heart? Love them. Love them. And when they see you love one another, they will see me the source of love, the model of love. He says this in 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How? I don't want you to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try a little harder. That's what gets us into this place where we're still feeling the last two bits of wrath and walking around with our heads in shame. We're supposed to bask in the love of Christ, that God loves us so much that he likes us. 
He's a fan of us. He's for us. And the way that we experience that is by the Holy Spirit. Listen with me in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He is in us because He has given us His Spirit. He has given us of His Spirit. That's why we're going to do a series on the fruit of the Spirit. Today is the first and most important one. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Meaning, do I have God inside of me? Do I have, am I a Christian? Do I believe? The first fruit you will begin to see is love. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. God will work it in you over time. God will work you in it over time. He will meet you in your failures. But you come to Him and say, God, give me more love for my spouse. Give me more love for my kids. Give me more love for my annoying co-workers. Not my annoying co-workers, but your annoying co-workers. <laughs> give me love for the people who need so badly to know real love. The Spirit will fill you up. You will not run out. You will not run out. Aaron's dad is a pastor and grew up, spent her whole life, her whole childhood in a small town in western Pennsylvania and in their beautiful country church, they have one of those huge water coolers. You know, the huge blue bottles that it takes a grown person to move. And one day we were staying there after church, kind of lingering, because when Erin's back in town, uh, everybody wants to talk to her, everybody's excited, she's like a local celebrity, and I'm just the guy that married Erin. And so everybody's talking with her, and Knox and I, there's like two or three inches left in the water cooler, and I see the spare water cooler sitting there, the spare bottle. And I'm like, I've never seen this happen. Knox, let's finish the first water cooler, and then we'll get to change to the second water cooler. Very exciting stuff. So he and I start knocking back waters, just cold water, just bam, one after the other, and we're laughing and we're teasing. And we drink so much water that I have to excuse myself from the fellowship hall. I'm like, I ain't got to go take care of something. I'll be right back to finish this water with you. I go, leave, come back, and some deacon has walked by the nearly empty water cooler and changed it already and ruined my life. But the point is, no matter how much I could drink, there was always going to be more. And that's what this picture of the Holy Spirit working in your life and heart is. The reason that you don't love people, the reason that it's hard to invest, the, the reason that it's hard to pour yourself out is because you're convinced, I'll run out. I won't have enough for me. I won't have enough for those who are close to me. I won't have enough. I'll be in a deficit. And what Jesus is saying here by the Holy Spirit, you won't run out. He's saying to his people, look, I am love. I'm the source of love. I have modeled love. I am love itself. And his people are walking around saying, well, we would love too, but we're not sure we'll have enough. And he's looking at him going, I'm enough. I will give you more. You will not run out. Go find the, the least, the lost, the lonely. Give them your life. You won't run out. You won't run out. It's a famous quote. It's attributed to a couple of different people, but listen to this. Think about this. For the last 2,000 years, the church hasn't run out of love. We, the unwilling, led by the unknowing, 
are doing the impossible for the ungrateful. We have done so much for so long with so little. We are now qualified to do anything with nothing. Say to God, I want to go love someone. I want to go do something meaningful with my life. He's like, go, I got you. You won't run out of love and you won't run out of resources. I will not call you and then not equip you. Go. He says, you won't run out of love. Rosario Butterfield said it this way. I know we need to close. This is what the unbelieving world needs to hear from us. Compassion means entering the suffering of another in order to lead them out. Compassion means entering the suffering of another in order to lead them out. You can't lead them out if you're not in it with them. Alistair Begg's applications for this text were this. Do you know God's love? Do you personally know God's love? Do you know how much he's given for you? Do you know how much he delights in you? Do you know God's love? If you don't, now is the time. Today is the day. Not tomorrow, not this afternoon, right now. Now now is the time. No one loves you as much as he does. And for you Christians, are you resting in that love? Or are you resting in your performance? Or your guilt? Or your shame? Or your promises to do better? Or are you resting in his love and his delight in you? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Some of you know the story. Excuse me. Another mass shooting from years ago. Nan walked into a small Amish day school and started executing children before he killed himself. One of the redemptive stories that came out of that tragedy was the way the Amish community loved Charles Roberts' family. Charles Roberts was the shooter. The same day, the Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family. The Amish visited the Roberts family, the shooter's family, to comfort them in their sorrow and pain and the loss of their son who took his own life. Later that week, Roberts' family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. And Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. Let me say that again. There were more Amish at the killer's funeral than there were non-Amish. And the media would not let that story go. You can still find it so quick. They would not let the story be go because they would, they would think, they would say, how is that possible? That's not normal love. How could you possibly love and serve and forgive like that? How is that possible? You and I know how. When you have been loved with an everlasting, sacrificial, forgiving love, all you want to do is give it to others. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Rather than have these people walk out of here ashamed of themselves, have them walk out of here with big smiles on their faces that they are loved beyond what they ever understood. Fill up their tanks so that they can go pour out their love for others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to confess our sins. This morning, I want you to hear this call to confession. And as you hear it, I want you to think of people in your life who you need to love so that you can confess your lack of love during our time of confession. Our call to confession says this, Almighty God, we confess how hard it is to be your people. You have called us to be the church, to continue the mission of Jesus Christ to our lonely and confused world. Yet we acknowledge we are more apathetic than active, more isolated than involved, more callous than compassionate, more obstinate than obedient, more legalistic than loving. Gracious Lord, have mercy upon us and forgive us our sins. Remove the obstacles preventing us from being your representatives to a broken world. Awaken our hearts to the promised gift of your indwelling spirit. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. The obstacles preventing us from being your representatives to a broken world. Awaken our hearts to the promised gift of your indwelling spirit. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.